0: We're continuing with God's wisdom in the Proverbs, chapter 6, reading the first 19 verses. Will you read with me? My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord Therefore, calamity shall come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among his brothers.
1: Well, thank you, Marcia. Well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Proverbs, and as we do, we come to Proverbs chapter 6. And as we get started this morning, I wonder um, how many of you read uh, those little warning labels um, on like products you, you buy or, or products you use and it's okay if you raise your hand. Or if you, Marcia, there you go. If you're one of those, if you're one of those um, sort of people, that's that's smart. That's that's wise, as we will see. That's it's good. It's wise. Um, so one person um, in this room reads warning labels on medicine you take. Um, that's great. Well, here are some real life, and I double checked all of these to make sure they're true. Um, real life examples of warning labels that are out there on a wheel, wheelbarrow. The warning label reads, not not intended for highway use. (laughs) Baby stroller. Warning label read, remove child before folding. (laughs) It's it's good. On a power drill, the warning label read, this product not intended for use as a dental drill. Uh, I I double-checked that. On an iron... Sorry, that's my Oklahoma accent coming out. Uh, On an iron... An iron-on shirt pattern. The warning label read, do not iron while wearing the shirt. <laughs> and then on a hairdryer, which I don't know anything about, the warning label read, do not use while sleeping. <laughs> like, so I, I doubt, right, any of you here um, would would ever need to be reminded of these warnings because i sure everyone in here has common sense and that you would never like try and iron a shirt while wearing it, right? Um, I think we're probably smarter than that. At the same time, as as foolish and silly as most of those warnings were there, right? Warnings are good, right? War, warnings are, are are like really good things, aren't they? Like warnings aren't meant to be restrictive in a sense, or to keep us from things that are, that are good for us, to withhold good things from us. Instead, warnings are, 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 are helpful in the sense of they, they keep us, they protect us from doing things that are foolish. They, they protect us and keep us from doing things that are, that are just really unwise and that could harm us and that could harm others around us. And the reason I mention all that is because this is what our passage is filled with this morning. That our passage this morning, it's filled with all kinds of of warnings. And specifically, our, our passage is filled with three warnings about three different topics or three different subjects. Warnings against debt, warnings against laziness, and warnings against sowing discord. And if you think about that, all three of those right are, are relevant in all of our lives, like money, work, and relationships. Like, like money is a good thing, like there's nothing wrong with money, but this passage is going to give us a warning when it comes to money. Like rest, relaxation, vacation, time off, sleeping, all good things. But this passage is going to give us a warning when it comes to this whole idea of of rest and relaxation. Relationships, friendships, like all good things. But this passage is going to give us a warning when it comes to our friendships and our relationships with one another. In other words, these warnings are going to protect us from foolishness. And these warnings are going to impart wisdom to us. And if you remember, that, that's what we've seen really within these first nine chapters in the book of Proverbs. We're only five chapters through them, but those first nine chapters is, is kind of this opening prologue, this opening introduction to the book of Proverbs. And if you remember, within those first nine chapters, you have the father, this father Solomon, who's instructing his son about wisdom and the value of wisdom, and the need to seek after wisdom and to pursue wisdom. In the midst of these instructions on wisdom then, the father Solomon is going to warn his son about some potential dangers that are out there. That this son hasn't begun to travel very long on this journey called life. And so before this son can get very long, very far on this journey called life, the father is going to provide him just some warnings. Hey, on this journey called life, there's some dangers that are out there. And you need to be careful of these dangers. I'm trying to give you these warnings to to protect you from foolishness and protect you from the harm that these dangers that you'll incur if you find yourselves buying into these dangers. And so if you remember last week, you saw the first danger in chapter 5 was the danger of sexual sin. And now this morning in chapter 6, in these first 19 verses of chapter 6, we're going to see three more warnings that Solomon is going to give his son and us as well that we need to be aware of in our lives. And those have to do with debt, those have to do with with laziness, and they have to do with sowing discord within the church. And so let's look at these warnings kind of one by one, we'll take them one by one. The first is this, and you see it on your handout there, the first warning is this. Don't put up security for the debt of someone else. Don't put up security for the debt of someone else. And so you hear that and you think, well, that seems like out of the blue. (laughs) That seems kind of random. That seems a little odd to just sprinkle in there right after these warnings about sexual sin. Don't put up security for the debt of someone else. Like, where'd that come from? Well, look at verse one here of chapter six. This is the warning that Solomon gives here in verse one. Look there with me. He says, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, and then he goes on. But let's stop there for just a minute to kind of understand the situation and the scenario that Solomon is describing and warning his son against here. He's warning his son, you see this in the second line of verse one here, against making a pledge with one of his neighbors or or with a stranger. And that word pledge refers to a, a handshake agreement. It's kind of like signing a contract, a, a binding contract in, in our day. But the specific pledge that he's warning his son against here is that of putting up security for his neighbor. So then, so then what's that? What, what, what does it mean to put up security for your neighbor? Well, security here is basically, think of like collateral. The, the son isn't to put himself up as collateral for his neighbor's debt. In case, in case his neighbor right, can't pay it back and, and ends up defaulting on it, then, then his son has put up security. It's kind of like co-signing on a loan and it, in, in case that neighbor or that, uh, that stranger can't defaults on it and can't pay it back, then that son has put himself up as collateral on it and promises to pay it back for his neighbor or for, for this stranger. And so then Solomon is warning his son and telling his son, don't do that. Don't, don't do it. If you do it, then you're going to be, you're going to be trapped. You're, you're locked in. That's what he's getting at in verse 2. You're responsible for it. It's all on you. There's no wiggle room. There's no way of escape. There's, there isn't any way out of it. Legally, you're trapped and you're going to have to pay it. You're going to have to pay it. And in that day, if you couldn't pay it, then, in many cases, you'd become a slave of the lender that you owed money to. So, what that means is it's pretty risky here to put up security for another person's debt. Because of that, then, look at what Solomon tells the son and us there in verse 3. Look there with me. He says, Then do this, my son, and save yourself, for if you, you, have, you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go. Hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. In other words, do you see what Solomon's saying? He's telling his son, he's telling us, go right now. Like do everything that you possibly can to get out of that agreement that you made with your neighbor. Like He's he's giving this illustration, this this example of these birds. Be like a gazelle, right? Be, Be like a bird. That if a gazelle or a bird was, was trapped in the hands of a hunter, you know what a bird would do? Is trapped in the hands of a hunter who was about to kill him? That bird would just start flapping all around, right? Trying to do everything, sorry you had to see that. But do everything that he can to like get out of the hands of the hunter who's about to kill him and eat him for lunch. And that's a picture, of this wild bird who's flapping around trying to do everything he can to escape the hands of the of the hunter. That's it's a picture of, of what those who put up security for another person's debt should do as well. They should beg, they should plead, they should call, they should leave voice messages, they shouldn't go to sleep until they've gotten themselves out of that pledge and that agreement that they've that they've made. That's the warning that Solomon is making here. And so then I know, right, in our day, especially living in a country that's trillions upon trillions of dollars in debt, like we, we come to this passage, and it might seem like a little extreme, you're like what in the world is he talking about here? But, but do you see why the Bible takes this so seriously and warns against this, putting up security for another person's debt? Like, here are a few reasons. This is free. This isn't on your handout there. But the first reason is because it, it makes you a slave of the person you signed a contract with and that you're in debt to. Like, they become your master. You're, you're enslaved to them. You're, you're, that's why he uses that trap language. You're, you're trapped. Secondly, doing this is presumptuous. Like, you're presuming that you're going to have the money and the ability to pay it off later if, if you have to. Third, then, it's not wise. It's not wise. In other words, if the lender believed that the person that they're lending money to is good for the money, <laughs> then they wouldn't ask somebody to co-sign on it. They wouldn't ask somebody to put up security and a pledge for it if, that, if they believe that person's good for it. But they ask somebody to pay for it or to, so, somebody put security and pledge for it because they don't think that person's going to be good for it. And so, if the bank doesn't think, or the lender doesn't think that person's good for it, it's probably not wise then to back them up. So, before you throw tomatoes at me, the question arises are there any exceptions to this warning here? My answer would be yeah, probably. Probably so. And we'll we'll talk a lot more about this in a few weeks when we get to Proverbs chapter 10 and get into the actual proverbs themselves but when it comes to proverbs in general like proverbs that they're not like all clear black and white absolute commands that are given instead proverbs are are more like general wise principles to live by because of that then there might be an exception here or there, when it comes to this warning that Solomon is, is, is making here. I'll let you decide in your own prayer, seeking the Lord and all those things of what those exceptions might be. At the same time, it's important that we don't water down this warning that is that, that the Bible is making here. It's still a warning. And it's still generally and normally not wise to put up security for another person's for another person's death. In saying all that though, here, here's, here's really the, the important, like deeper, more significant, what I would call spiritual truth that I pray that these verses would remind us of. that what Solomon is warning his son against here, what Solomon is telling his son not to do here, is exactly what Jesus did. For everyone who's placed their faith and trust in him. Did you catch that? Like, like, think about that, right? We've sinned against an infinitely holy God. And because of that, like we've incurred a humongous debt that we can't ever repay. We, we can't. There's nothing we can do to ever repay the debt that we've incurred and that we've built up for the sin that we've committed. But even though we can't repay it, Jesus came and he took responsibility for our debt and he paid it for us even when we couldn't. He paid the debt that we owe for our past, our present, and our future sins. And he did this by dying in our place on the cross. And because of that then, when God looks at our account ledger now to see what we owe because of our sin, then guess what he sees? Nothing, there's nothing there because Jesus paid our sin debt in full. So that's the first warning then that Solomon gives here to us and to his son. It has to do with putting up security for another person's debt. The second warning then that he gives us is this. It's to not be lazy. It's to not be lazy. And this is what he goes on to say and warn us against there in verse six. Look there with me. He's addressing this popular character that we see 14 total times um, in the book of Proverbs known as the sluggard. And the sluggard is the the lazy person. It's the person who's just lazy, who wants to lay around, who wants to stay in bed, who don't want to do much work at all, but just wants to goof off, jack around, and just hang out. That's That's the sluggard. And so Solomon is addressing this sluggard and he's telling this sluggard to learn from the example of an ant. And so there's something about an ant that a sluggard and lazy people are to be able to learn from. And so what would that be? Well, here's here's what we, okay, I'm gonna say we because we all have a little bit of sluggard inside all of us, okay? This, here's what we, the sluggard, lazy sluggards, can learn from ants, okay? You see this on your handout. The first is this, ants are self-starters. Ants are self-starters, meaning ants are self-motivated. This is what he's getting at in verse 7, when he says, without having any chief officer or ruler, she, talking about the ant, prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest, in other words, an ant doesn't need somebody breathing down their neck and hovering over them in order to work and get stuff done. Like Ants are, like, are, are self-motivated. They, they take the initiative, they're proactive, they don't need somebody nagging them, prodding them, giving them oversight, checking up on them continually. Instead, ants just work. And if you, if you dispute that, like just come over to my house... And like, I'll show you how, how busy and the work ethic of an ant, okay? particularly in one little bathroom we have, which is driving me crazy. But anyway, just, just think about that for a minute, right? Ants are self-starters. Lazy sluggards aren't self-starters. starters. They need somebody hovering over them, breathing over their neck, nagging them, prodding them, continually reminding them in order to get anything done. So think about this, right? Kids, listen, if you're a kid, I'll let you define and determine whether or not you're still a kid. But this right here is important for you to hear. Your parents shouldn't have to breathe down your neck and continually nag you to do your chores, to get your homework done, to read your Bible or anything else. Instead, you should be responsible ...in order to do all of those things... ...without them continually checking up on you... ...and asking you about it. Husbands. For a lot of husbands... ...your wife... ...is no different than your mom. And that's not good. What I mean by that is that you're so lazy and you lack the initiative to follow through with things and to get things done and to fulfill certain responsibility, unless your wife continually nags you, reminds you about it, checks up on you about it, and prods you to do it. That's not good, you sluggard. Christians, in general, okay, before I say this, don't don't get me wrong on what I'm about to say. Every Christian has the need for pastoral oversight. Every Christian has the need for accountability. So the Bible teaches, that's the whole point of church membership, but the Bible teaches all of those things. So yes and amen to all that. At the same time, if the only time you read your Bible, if the only time you pray, if the only time you fight specific sin in your life, if the only time you come to church or come to D.C., is when an elder D.C. leader or fellow church member holds you accountable to do it and consistently checks up on you, then something's desperately wrong. You're a lazy sluggard. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah, we need accountability. We're to watch out for one another. But at the same time, you're to be proactive and take responsibility for your own spiritual growth and your own spiritual well-being and not be a lazy sluggard. Everybody with me? Amen. So that's the first truth we can learn from the ant. An ant's a self-starter. Doesn't need somebody kicking it at its rear end to get stuff done if an ant has a rear end. I don't don't know. The second truth we learn from the ant is this. An ant has foresight and doesn't procrastinate. Some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh. Right? This is the whole point of what he's getting at there in verse 8. It says that the ant prepares her food in summer and gathers her food in harvest. In other words, for the ant to eat and survive during the winter, it has to, it has to gather its food during the summer and, and during the harvest. And what that means then is that, that if an ant's lazy and just puts it off and off and off and spends the whole summer on social media, binge watching Netflix, playing video games, just hanging out with friends. Then when winter comes, guess what? The ant's going to die because he's got nothing to eat. But guess what ants do during the summer? They're scurrying around, staying busy because they know winter's coming. They, They got this foresight. They're not procrastinating. And they're gathering that food and working hard and scurrying around and tucking it away they have foresight they're planning ahead they're not procrastinating they're not putting things off so they can just goof off during summer but think about it right this is exactly what lazy sluggards do like the chief most important thing in a sluggard's life is immediate gratification like lazy people live for love immediate gratification. They live for immediate pleasure and comfort right now, right, 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 right then and there. They don't think five minutes from now. They don't think 10 minutes from now. They don't think two days from now and what needs to be done by, by then. They're just thinking right now. What do I feel right now? What do I desire right now? What am I craving right now? And they just, they just feed those selfish desires the immediate gratification right right now. And because of that, then they they, they end up paying for it when they put things off and procrastinate. Those are those are two lessons here we learn from, from the ant. Secondly then, so sluggards are to learn from the ant. Secondly then, what we see about the sluggard is that a sluggard loves to lay around and sleep. Sluggard loves to lay around and sleep. Nobody like nudge anybody or, or look at anybody. Um, but anyway, you know who you are. Look at, look at verse nine. This is what Solomon's saying in verse nine. He says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? In other words, Solomon's looking at his watch. He's like, okay, it's, it's 11 a.m. You gonna get up yet? It's, it's noon. You gonna, you gonna wake up yet? Verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. This is lazy people love, love to sleep. They love to stay in bed. Their alarm clock goes off and they just hit that snooze button and think just, just five more minutes. A little more sleep, a little more slumber. Then five more minutes. Five more minutes. Five more minutes. Five 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 five. So don't get me wrong, right? There's there's nothing wrong with sleep. I'm all for sleep. In fact there's something deeply spiritual about sleep, which is it's a whole nother sermon. Seven hours, eight hours sleep, it's all, it's all good. The slain, same time though, the sluggard loves to sleep. He has a hard time getting out of bed. They just like to lay around. As a result, and thirdly here, you see this on your head out, sluggards will pay the consequence for their laziness. That's what Solomon's getting at in verse 11. He says, here's, here's the result, the consequence of following in the footsteps of the sluggard. He says, that poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. And so then here, here's the thing I want us to really realize when it comes to this whole issue of laziness. When it comes to the Bible, laziness, this issue of laziness, it's not a personality issue. It's a sin issue. Everybody with me? It's not just a personality issue. Oh, that's just, No. Laziness is, is, is lazy, sluggards are on the foolish path of unrighteousness that leads to death. This isn't a, a just a, a gray area. Some people are like that. This is a clear black and white sin issue. And here's why. Here's why God and the Bible warns us so strongly about laziness and why laziness is a sin issue. Four reasons, really, really quick. The first reason is this. It's because God, this isn't on your hand up, because God created us to work. God created you to work, right? Genesis 1 and 2, one of the things you'll notice pretty quickly in Genesis 1 and 2 is that one of the reasons God created mankind is to work. In other words, work isn't one of the results of the fall. I mean, the, the sweating and all that's a result of the fall, right? But work in and of itself isn't a result of the fall. Work is part of God's design for our lives. God created you and me to work. Second reason, then, that laziness is a sin issue is because God redeemed us. He saved us to work. He saved us to work. He redeemed us to work. In other words, if you're a Christian, then you're not saved By your works, but you are saved to work. Does that make sense? Like, write this down. Titus chapter two, verse 14. Paul's writing, he tells Titus this. He says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Paul tells Timothy in in uh, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, 1st or 2 Timothy. I can't remember. Do the work of an evangelist. James in in the book of James says faith without works is dead. 1 Corinthians 15 10, Paul says, I worked harder than all of them. Like that, that's it. Like as Christians we're to rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for us? Like it's only by His work that we're saved and redeemed, but at the same time, He saved us to work. In other words, if when you begin to understand all that Jesus has done for you, all that He's accomplished for you, all that He's secured for you through His his death on the cross, then how can you not then work? Like how can you not then actively, intentionally love others as Jesus has loved you? How can you not actively and intentionally serve others as Jesus has served you? How can you not actively and intentionally seek to practically care for others as Jesus has cared for you? How can you not pray for others, disciple others, share the gospel with others, work hard in reading and studying the word, work hard in your job because you see your job as one of the primary ways in which you love your neighbor and serve others and and exercise your gift in, in serving others around you. If, if Jesus has done all of this and accomplished all of this through his work on the cross, then, then our response to that grace and that mercy then is to get busy in serving and loving and caring and exercising our gifts for the edification of the body and love for our neighbor. God redeemed us to work. Third reason, laziness is a sin is because laziness is rooted in a me-centered, self-focused, self-absorbed, comfort-driven heart. In other words, when we're lazy, our eyes are usually just focused on self, on on me. My wants, my needs, my comfort, my desires, and just trying to find ways to to meet those needs and meet those desires. Laziness is selfishness. Fourth reason laziness is sin is because laziness is idolatry. Laziness is idolatry. In other words, many times or oftentimes, we use laziness as a way to hide, as a way to escape. We use laziness as a refuge, as a place of refuge to hide us from the stress and the difficulties and the troubles that we're facing in this life. The only problem with that is that laziness was never meant to be our refuge or our hiding place. God was. And because of that, when we look to laziness to be our refuge and be our hiding place, then we're looking at, to laziness to be and do for us what only God was meant to be and do for us. And when we look to something to be and do for us when only God was meant to be and do for us, the Bible calls that idolatry. And so laziness is idolatry. And so, again, there is a time and a place. Some of you all are workaholics and you need a whole different sermon, right? That, that's coming, Right? At the same time, so there's a time and a place for rest and vacation and relaxation and sabbaticals and, and all that stuff, right? There's a time and place for all that. But in this particular warning, he's warning us against being a, sl- a lazy, lazy sluggard. Third warning, he goes, is this, and we'll conclude with this one. Third warning is about not sowing discord. Not sowing discord. That's what Solomon warns us against there in verse 12. Look there with me. He says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond so Solomon here is describing a certain type of person. He, he calls this person a worthless, <laughs> wicked person. How do you like that? You worthless, wicked person. All right. The word worthless here refers to a rebellious troublemaker who's up to no good. A rebellious troublemaker who's up to no good. So this rebellious, wicked troublemaker who's up to no good. Look, look how he describes the actions of this wicked Worthless person. Verse 12, he says that this wicked person goes around with with crooked speech. Meaning he goes around lying and gossiping and spreading rumors and slandering others and and all of that. In verse 13, he says that this worthless, wicked person winks with his eyes, he signals with his feet, he points with his fingers. All of those are like secret gestures. They're like secret signals that this wicked man is making to other conspirators that he doesn't want anyone else to see. And so as they kind of secretly plot and devise kind of an evil scheme, you know, like a third base coach, you know, given these signals. If you don't know baseball, sorry. You know, he's given these signals to the batter. That's kind of the picture here, but it's not signals for whether to swing or bunt, you know, or take the pitch. But it's, but it's a signal to other To others, evil people kind of in their midst as they're plotting some sort of evil. And you know what the evil is that they're plotting? Look at the rest of verse 14. It says, with his perverted heart, he devises evil. That's why he's doing all those gestures and signals and signs. And here's the specific evil he's devising. He's continually sowing discord. Meaning there's this group of sneaky people kind of going around and secretly planting seeds of division and discord and distrust and suspicion among others and trying to seek to cause all sorts of division and and conflict and discord among people. And one of the primary ways they're doing this is through crooked speech. They're going around gossiping and spreading rumors and lies and slandering others to be able to cause some sort of discord among, among this group of people. And so then here's the result then and here's the consequence that those who sow discord will incur in face. We see it there in verse 15. Calamity will come upon him suddenly and in a moment he will be broken beyond healing. In other words, that's code for God's going to judge and punish that person. Get that God's going to judge and punish the person who secretly and sneakily, that's not even a word but sows, sows discord. And here's why. Here's why God's gonna bring calamity and judgment and punishment on the person who sows discord. We see it there in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that makes haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. And, here it comes, again, one who sows discord among brothers. There's two really important parts points you need to understand when it comes to verses 16 through 19 here. And the first is this. Almost everything that he mentions there in verses 16 through 19, he's already mentioned in verses 12 through 15. What that means, then, and the reason that's important, is because that what that signals is that there's a... There's a connection here happening between verses 12 through 15 and verses 16 through 19 because he pretty much mentions most of the same exact sort of actions. The other thing then we need to notice in verses 16 through 19 is the structure or the pattern that we see here within these verses. That any time you had this numerical pattern here of giving a number, like the number six, and then adding a one to it, We're adding an extra number to it, so like a one now to make it seven. The purpose in doing that is to highlight and emphasize the final thing that's added, the final extra item that was added. That final item in the list then is the culmination, it's the product, it's the result of all the other items in the list. And so then when it comes to verses 16 through 19 here, a person with haughty eyes, a person with a lying tongue, Whose hands shed innocent blood, whose heart devises wicked plans, whose feet run to evil, who, who breathes out lies. All of these things, all of those activities then culminate in, and the product of all of those activities then is the result of all those activities is, is discord among the brothers. And the Lord hates that. Like, that's the point. He hates everything in that list. But he especially hates those who sow discord. And he especially hates it when it happens among the brothers. Like among the covenant community. Like in the church. Like he says it's an abomination to him. Meaning he can't stand it. It makes his stomach turn. It completely and utterly repulses him. He hates it. And do you know why he hates it? Do you know why he he hates discord so much? Especially discord in the church? Because Jesus died for the church. Like Jesus spilled his own blood for the church. Like think about it, Jesus died to create a whole new humanity known as the church. Not Jews, not Gentiles, but a whole new humanity. Like Jesus died to take all these random individuals from all these different tongues and nations and these different genders, different ages, different socioeconomic level, levels, all these things. He died to yoke them together and unite us together into the same body known as the, known as the church. And so then we, if we take that which Jesus died for and that which Jesus shed his own blood to unite together, and then if we take that and just begin with our words and our actions toward one another, begin to just rip it apart and tear it apart by sowing discord in it, then God hates that. It's an abomination to him. I mean, think about this. Imagine somebody taking your most prized possession, something that you just deeply cherish. And so like if, you, if you're married, your your spouse then. And imagine somebody taking the thing that you value more than anything, your prized Precious, treasured possession. And one day they just take it and just begin to literally just rip it to shreds, just tearing it apart. How would that make you feel? You'd be ticked off. You wouldn't like that. You wouldn't just shrug your shoulders and, fine. You'd burn with anger. That's exactly how God feels about those who sow discord in the church. It's His prized possession, his cherished possession, took Jesus' blood to buy it and to purchase it. So don't tear it apart. Don't rip it to shreds. Don't sow discord in the church. In other words, like practically speaking, if you have a problem or concern with someone in the church, don't talk about them with somebody else. Instead, go to them and talk to them. If something's going on in the church or in your D.C. that you don't like, don't go complain about it and grumble about it to others. First, go to the Lord and pray about it. If someone hurts you in the church, offends you in the church, don't run from them and hide and harbor bitterness against them. Go to them and talk to them instead. Don't assume the worst about others and the motives of others. Instead, believe the best about others until maybe facts would prove otherwise. Like there's a whole lot more practical things that could be listed here and added here. But the whole picture that we see here is, is the hatred that God feels toward those who sow discord in the church. And so the warning is this. Don't sow discord in the church. Don't plant seeds of discord in the church, by your speech or by your actions. So those right there, speaking of warning labels, three warning labels that Solomon gives to us in this chapter, that I pray and hope that we would all heed, that we would all hear and listen to, and that we would all follow. But it's saying all that, it's important that we realize and it's important that we understand the ultimate goal and the ultimate point of these warnings, of these warning labels. That the ultimate goal, the ultimate point of these warnings isn't for us to simply change our behavior in these three areas. Yes, that is one of the goals when it comes to these warnings, but it's not the ultimate goal when it comes to these warnings. Instead, the ultimate goal when it comes to these warnings isn't simply for us to change our behavior, but it's to point to us to Jesus. It's to remind us that Jesus is our surety, he's our guarantor, and that he's paid all of our debts. So then we don't, have to, we don't need to fill the need then to put up security and surety for the debts of others. It's to remind us that because of Jesus' work on the cross, we, shouldn't, we should work too. And we shouldn't be lazy. We shouldn't work for our salvation. We should work because of our salvation. And it reminds us that because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, he has united all of us into a new humanity known as the church, a new body known as the church. So then let's not tear it apart and rip it to shreds by sowing discord. That's the ultimate motivation when it comes to all of these warnings. The reality is... You don't have to be a Christian necessarily to follow these warnings. A Jew can follow these warnings. A Muslim can follow these warnings. A Hindu can follow these warnings. An atheist can follow these warnings in a moralistic sort of sense, simply by modifying their behavior and changing their behavior. But what will ultimately change your heart when it comes to your heart posture in applying these warnings is ultimately Jesus. He and he alone can accomplish and do that. And I pray that as we leave here, yes, we would heed these warnings, but our eyes would be fixed on Jesus and allow him to do the transformative work, not beginning externally, but beginning internally inside of us and manifesting itself externally in our lives when it comes to our use of money and debt, when it comes to our work ethic and laziness, and when it comes to our relationships with others and not sowing discord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for how practical it is. Lord, just reminded as we're going through Proverbs that there is an, an area of our lives um, that you don't reign supreme over. Lord, there's not an area of our life that we can look at and say, well, that's, that's mine. I, I'm Lord of that area. I can do what I want to in that area. I'll use my own wisdom when it comes to that area. Oh, Lord, as we go throughout Proverbs, we've seen, Lord, that you, you reign and rule and have a say over, ev- over ev- every area of our lives. And that even includes things like debt and laziness and, and work and our relationships with one another. And so, Lord, as we've been confronted with your word this morning, Lord, I pray that we would heed these warnings. Lord, that we would not just shrug our shoulders and think that we're above any of these things. But I pray most importantly that we would see that the, motive, that the ultimate motivation that comes um, for living these out doesn't come from our own willpower or for um, our own ability and strength that's inside of us, that it only ultimately comes from Jesus. Lord, help us to drink deeply of the gospel and all that Jesus has secured for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection for us. And pray that the reality of those things would cause us to work harder than anybody around us would cause us to live at peace and and love in our relationships with one another and would cause us to be wise in terms of our, our use of our money. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name.